Welcome to Disarming Persuasion, the podcast for sales and business leadership professionals. My name is Dave Rosenberg, and I am the founder and principal at Locked On Leadership, a consulting firm with a mission to replace Thank God It's Friday with Thank God It's Monday. With me is my co-host, a man who can literally teach sales with one hand tied behind his back, Darren Cecil. Darren, what are we going to discuss today? I have no credibility left, so I'm just going to say you invited another great guest. Oh, my God. So, folks, there's a really important lesson here, which is when you hold people accountable enough, eventually they do learn. Because if Darren has learned, there's no excuses anymore. So we we do have a great guest. We have with us uh, Jim Beatty from the Concrete Foundation Association. He's the executive director. Uh, actually, he's much more than that because as, as I'm uh, right, you're actually with Jim, a, a association management firm, correct? Right. And uh, so how many different associations do you represent? We have two that we represent, uh, have for 30 years now, uh, Concrete Foundations Association and the Tilt-Up Concrete Association. Right. And I, I, every now and then I put those two together in my mind, it becomes like the tilt up foundations association. And then I have to stop and think and go, that's not really a good thing. Um, <laughs> so Jim, we, we start out every podcast where we have a guest with the same question. And that is simply this, the, the name of the podcast is disarming persuasion. When you think of that phrase, what does that mean to you? So I, I think that's uh, really meaningful to me. So one of the things that I think I've I've grown accustomed to leveraging is uh, our advocacy as association management and advocacy uh, when you're supporting the construction industry has an awful lot of, of persuasive tendencies and where that advocacy for me fits in is that, that uh, balance between the inspectors, building officials, designers that are, have expectations, even owners that have expectations and are trying to persuade the construction industry in one way or the other. And simultaneously, you have the construction industry that's kind of defending their best practices, defending their means and methods, and are trying to persuade uh, the acceptance criteria. In the middle of that is my advocacy that I can bring reality to both sides. And so in, in essence, I'm disarming persuasion right there. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think you are. Um, so Darren, since uh, you don't know, Jim, perhaps you could start off uh, with uh, whatever you like. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Dave. So Jim, my question to you is, thank you for joining us, first of all. My first question to you is, as I look at your career, and obviously a very distinguished career. And I'm curious, what did you learn from the broadcasting world that you relate to your current occupation in business? Mm, Darren, uh, first of all, both to you and Dave, thanks for having me. And uh, that's a great question that we kind of got at my broadcasting facet uh, in before we started this podcast. And, and I think, you know, broadcasting for me has... Um, accentuated and also um, benefited from the free thinking and and my association management uh, I think has benefited from the free thinking that broadcasting requires uh, 
you can go in with a storyline, with an expectation, an idea, but what you're really doing in broadcasting is you're reacting, reacting to the instantaneous moment, whether that's celebratory or whether it's not. And I, I find it particularly through this last 18 months of pandemic, uh, it to be very relevant that that ability, a popular word is pivoting right now. You know, everybody talks about how we've pivoted and man, that's what the broadcasting world teaches you. Uh, and so I've, I've really benefited in both directions, allowing my association management career to influence how I broadcast. And then that broadcast free thinking, allowing me to be more, uh, more responsive and reactive to what I need, what my association client needs are. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah that's an interesting parallel that I really wouldn't have thought about, but um, you know, in, in order to be a great leader, um, and or a great salesperson. And, and you know, we, we look at persuasion from a sales and leadership perspective here, really two sides of the same coin. One of the things, and we haven't really explored this in any of our episodes, is you really need to be present. You need to be in the moment. Um, too many of our uh, compatriots out there in either side of this are, are, are thinking about their agenda which means they're thinking about the future and you miss so much and, and broadcast. You have to do the same thing. You don't know what the play is. You don't know what's going to happen. And if you're not in the moment, you're going to miss it. And you have to be able to, tr- I, I just never thought of that parallel. I think that's really, really powerful there. Um, it's funny. You were talking about pivoting and you and I had a conversation. Oh, a couple months ago, what not too long ago as, mm-hmm. as we're coming out of this and, uh, this really isn't pandemic related. It's actually uh, socioeconomic related. We, everyone knows there's a, a lot of, uh, well, inflation going on and it's really affecting material costs in the construction industry. And you came up with some creative um, ways to help your members through this. Uh, I was really impressed. In fact, I was talking to one of my, my coaching clients about this, about your uh, leveraging your buying power on that. And that also required you to pivot. Yeah, I think, go ahead, finish that question. My question is, what was your thought process to develop that solution? Um, Because that just floored me when when you and I had that conversation. Well, you know, um, I think the simplicity of it was, it was a gut reaction to panic. Uh, So uh, the construction industry being affected by such severe shortages and the, the construction industry in particular that I was dealing with there was one that, have, that impacts residential construction, the foundations for residential construction. And our, our realization that residential construction is a, a predictor, a preventer, and a sustainer of our social economic conditions. And so it, it's imperative that we, when, when house, uh, the housing starts need to happen because we're behind in our ability to to fill the demand, we've got to be able to support it and sustain construction practice and, and advance it. And, and we were seeing the pressures of the supply industry saying, no, but uh, that's not what's going to happen here. Steel shortages, wood shortages, cement shortages. And so what we were, what we were instantly thrown into was this need to communicate with the raw material suppliers and to try to bolster their confidence in how big our industry was and what our industry could do to, uh, to support their needs. Now we're, 
I, I won't say that we're hundred percent successful yet. We're still having those negotiations. And, and I think that uh, the influence of the pandemic, the influence of this high demand in every market imaginable right now, we're going to face that for another, I don't know, 10 to 12 months, probably. But what we are given the opportunity as association leaders uh, and association, uh, again, it's advocacy and, and industry representation, is to forge that conversation to say it's not about individual supply and demand, but look at the whole market as a whole and how can we bring value to, from the supply to the delivery. Excellent. And then, so Jim, to follow up on that, how could you relate that from a persuasion perspective, either for leadership or in sales ways to ways to market that ways to target that? Yeah, I think Darren, that's a great question. Um, what we found from a, from a sales perspective and, and um, the influence of persuasion here is that some of our very industry specific supply chain problems have been based on the inability to sell the concept of supply confidence and uh, so what, we, what we've tried to do is we've tried to rebuild the chain in essence, which means you have to start with uh, at either end, really. You, so if we start from the contractor end, which is, is the, uh, the focal point that I have or the advocacy, the field of influence, is to say, what is your message to your buyers? How can you, um, in one on one hand, how can I influence your conversation with your buyers to build confidence? And then through that confidence, receive that sales volume, that, that support, so that you can then turn around and look upstream and then begin to sell your upstream through supply, through broker, through manufacturer, all the way back to raw material production, that this is the volume anticipation that we expect over the next six months, nine months. Um, that's what we're trying to accomplish. And we've, we've found that along the way over the last uh, decade, let's say, that that confidence has eroded. And, and so our form of persuasion right now is trying to rebuild confidence, both in a domestic or a, a balance between domestic and, and import uh, provisions. So, so Jim, what are you finding is effective? And what are you, or maybe even a better question is, what are you finding that's ineffective and why so that our listeners can who might find themselves in an analogous situation might go all right, let me learn from that yeah i think what we found ineffective um, i think is uh is assuming that just simply having conversation which breeds awareness is enough to develop participation uh and um, cohesion in other words, and, and, and so that's a lot of uh, a lot of words is to say that <laughs> I have a phone call with someone and I might have uh, the ability to connect with that individual and I'll walk away assuming, hey, they're on board and they're going to participate in whatever cohesive element uh, or, or group that I'm able to establish. They're going to walk away from that phone conversation, probably thinking the opposite, that they that they got a win on their end and they're going to be able to conduct business as usual. So from a persuasion perspective, I think what we've begun to, found, to find successful is that you've got to, you've got to create stakeholder um, 
you, you've got to have stakeholders present together. And that's the beauty I think that we've learned from the pandemic is the, is the advancement of our confidence in virtual technology. Like this podcast that we're having right now, the three of us are in different locations and we can have that one single conversation and get to a point that is the essence of our problem. Uh, where we've been successful is doing that, uh, and it, we won't be able we won't be able to do that in person. We won't be able to pull people together from different markets, likely be, uh, if for no other reason because they're strong competitors. They don't want to be in the room together. But we can have a, a video conference, and we can see heads nodding, and we can uh, we can give each other the space to to voice their frustrations, their concerns and find those common elements that when we walk away from that meeting, we're all in agreement that this was the target goal of the meeting, this was the target outcome or the achieved outcome of that meeting. So I think from our perspective, 18 months of changing the dynamic of persuasion uh, has, has meant, meant more about collaboration and how we come together to solve problems than it is me and myself against the world. Appreciate that. So another question I would have is, so have you had mentors? And if so, what have you learned from them from a sales and a leadership and persuasion perspective? Yeah, I have had um, personal mentors uh, and that, that I've grown up under. And they're the ones that uh, have, have taught me the art of listening. Uh, now, I'm and, and maybe you could, if you listen to any of my broadcasts, you, you can tell I'm a higher energy person. Uh, I'm, a, I'm way high on the extrovert scale. And people like that typically are not good listeners. You know, we, we are quick to solutions. We're quick to points. Uh, we, we fill dead airspace. And uh, we're, we're kind of, that's the natural, um, the, the nat- natural ambience of our character. Makes us good broadcasters. What it doesn't do is make us good listeners. And so um, what I've learned from several mentors, both recently during pandemic and the pressures that we've faced here, but also just over my career, the 20 years I've been managing concrete associations, is how important it is in selling, in looking to persuade people in, the, in a given direction, you got to listen. Because the only way that you're going to convince somebody to take the step over the line that you're trying to convince them to drive over or to step over is to understand what their perspective is, what their real need is, and to help them see the solution that you're offering them. So from an association perspective, uh, you know, membership is a real challenge for us day in, day out. Not because we don't have enough to, enough resources, enough benefits to provide them, but it's because we oftentimes don't spend enough time listening to them to understand what is the pressure point that's preventing them from making that membership solution. The reality is membership in any organization is such a cost-effective decision. It, it really involves, in most cases, an amount of money that is, is paltry in comparison to what you might spend in other ways, certainly in the risk that you're taking not being a part of that association. But yet, without listening to them to understand what is their point of resistance, is it is it focus, time, time to focus, wrong person that you're talking to? Is it um, an, an, a lack of comprehension about whether or not I actually can resolve these problems for them? That's what I've, I really think that I've spent most, the most amount of time in the last 20 years learning is that 
that chance uh, to, to listen and to understand people better. Wow. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm getting a thread as I sit here and listen to you um, that is really common in, in both scenarios we just talked about, whether it's uh, attracting members to your association, which in your world, of course, is the sales aspect of what you do. Yep. You're selling, selling the membership or in crafting a solution to a, a system-wide problem, a supply chain problem. You said something in both situations, let people voice their frustrations and concerns. I wrote that down. You, you said that specifically with supply chain, but that's actually what you just said about the membership is, is deep listening, figure out. My question for you is what have you found to be effective to create that safe environment to allow people to voice those frustrations? Because a lot of times we're very guarded. You know, if you're meeting somebody for the first time, perhaps, and we typically don't share our innermost frustrations with total strangers. I, I don't walk down the street and go, hey, uh, strange person, this is really bothering me, right? We, we put a mask up, we put a shield up. Um, and, and we only do that in an environment where we trust somebody because we're going to make ourselves vulnerable. How do you, how do you create that? I, I think that one word for me is time. Um, I have to invest and I have to be willing to invest time into each person that I'm persuading, each company that I'm persuading to cross over that line with me. Uh, and, and we were talking about World of Concrete earlier, and that's, you know, the, the, that's the big event annually that all of our construction, concrete construction industry uh, organizations and companies participate in. And that could be, that, that's a, such a great and electric environment. And I relate that to drive-by relationships. I, I cannot expect to obtain appreciable membership growth simply on the show floor talking to people as quickly as they're walking by wondering who I am and what I represent. And the main reason isn't because they're not a buyer. They're not a decision maker at that moment. It's that they don't trust me. They know that I'm there for the purpose of gaining their money, gaining their sale, gaining their attention. And so um, this act of listening that I have grown to appreciate and to involve in my process means I have to stop frequently and listen and build that incremental relationship that, that, that ultimate over time that develops the trust that they're going to place in me, not for that initial check, but for the, the following attention that comes over and over and over again, as they come up with a problem that they're going to trust that I'm going to have a solution to, which is in, in, Every aspect is not my knowledge, but my knowledge of the people that I can send them to, which is the reason that they're tying into that network. And so for very much, and, and the only way that I'm going to understand who I should network that individual or that company to is by getting to know them and developing that trust, as well as that vision as to who they are, what their problems are, and where are they best served. So building upon that, if someone were to walk up to you on the showroom floor, I'm just curious, what are a couple of suggestions you might offer that our listeners could glean and go, that would be something that I could do to start to establish trust. Any thoughts on what you could say? Yeah. And, and what I use frequently is I, I try to, I try to put 
the conversation as much on, on the person that's walking up to me as possible. Everybody comes up and they're kind of looking around and they're, you know, they're, they're assessing the visual message that I'm providing to them. And they're trying to determine whether or not I'm somebody that they want to talk to. And what I try to do is I try to engage them and ask them how they are, who they are, where are they from? What do they deal with? And I'll talk to, I'll talk to an individual that is maybe parallel to our industry uh, interests. I may, I may talk to somebody that's completely divergent of our uh, interests and eventually find the commonalities there that I can then say to them, have you ever considered this? Uh, and I think that is, that's part of that active listening. The only way that you can actively, actively listen to people is you have to constantly put the conversation in them, to them. If, and what I found, Darren, is that if I can't get an individual to have that conversation that opens up their needs, they're probably not somebody that's right, a right fit for the network that I represent. And it's an immediate qualifier. That's, that's really a great insight right there, right? I mean, if you can't make that connection, they're not at a right place to make that connection and you, you can't force that, um, not old school. So I had a similar question um, because you're clearly a very good listener, but especially if you think about it, and I've, I've worked, um, as I know Darren has floors in, in the middle of expos uh, at a booth, very challenging environment, right? It's, it's, it's a lot like um, uh, trying to work the floor in a casino, right? In Vegas, right? You have bells and whistles and distractions and, you know, noises, et cetera. In, in addition, I think we all come to those with our own agenda. And that's another form of distraction, the mental distraction of trying to drive something to where we want to go. And all that makes it challenging to listen because we're, we have all this noise, whether it's mental noise or, or real noise. What's one trick that you've developed over, you know, the decades to help you really be focused and listen actively as opposed to, you know, oh, what did that, I missed that. What was that? So I'm thinking as you asked me that question, I know exactly what my response is. And I think that this video conference environment is the hardest um, environment to achieve that. And that is eye contact. Um, and so, so all three of us know us know right now that we can't look at each other and look at our video camera at the same time. And so if I want your listeners to have eye contact with me, I've got to look at my camera, not at Darren and not at you, Dave. And so the trick, the trick for me in the show floor environment is that when I'm having that conversation, I want eye contact. And so I'm constantly, and, and now this is a really difficult platform depending on your personality type. Because the, you know, the more introverted you are, the harder it is for you to maintain that eye contact. But I believe that there's a moment in any personal relationship that if you're able to hold eye contact lock long enough, and I'm, I'm beginning to hear um, your, the basis, Dave, that where you and I met each other in this, this idea of locked on leadership. And, and if you can lock in if you can engage somebody and, and get past the uncomfort, the discomfort of looking into each other's eyes, you make that connection where you begin to relax and you have that conversation. 
the other thing that it does for me is that it, it, it locks outside all of those variables, all of that noise, because I can then, my ears will follow my eyes and I'm actually listening to what you're saying. So that's the, my trick is um, the, the longer I can hold uh, your gaze or the longer I can look in. And, and even if, if the individual is uncomfortable, uncomfortable in that situation, they're looking away and they're looking around, which probably means they're looking for their exit. Um, I can get past that with them and, and find that comfort level and the platform that we can then begin to have a productive conversation. Yeah, I, that, that's so true. But you bring up two thoughts that I want to share. I probably shouldn't say this out loud, except for I know I'm not going to be in a position to invent this. And so I'd rather be out there than be in here and not out there is if somebody could create a monitor with the camera built in center monitor and hidden, because you're right, I either have to look up at the camera, which I know when I'm doing virtual performances, that's what I do because then, um, you know, that, that that's what film actors do. They engage right. the camera um, right. or I'm looking at you. Now it looks like I'm looking down and, and, right. and it's, it's, it's certainly less engaging. Um, but I heard another trick for in-person connecting, not a trick. I, 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 I probably misspoke there. A more powerful way of looking in somebody's eye that I just learned uh, on a retreat. I came back from Dan and I were talking about before the show, before you joined us. Not just look in their eyes, look in their left eye, mm-hmm. because that's the side that connects with the emotional side of the brain. And that helps create that connection. And, and it's one of those things we practiced and it's, it's uh, mind blowingly powerful. And, and that's, you know, that's really a, a great point because it, it, and you, if you've ever practiced this, the more that you try to look at people in their eyes, you find out how impossible it is to look at both eyes. My two eyes cannot look at your two eyes, but my two eyes can focus in on a point. And so doing so on the left eye, which is their emotional eye, the emotional side of their brain is really important. Um, A memory that I have uh, in uh, college, uh, I have a degree as an architect and I took a course, an engineering course. And the professor, the moment that he walked in the room, because he always came in after all the students were in, the moment he walked into the room, he spent the entire hour talking to one of the two upper corners in the room, the upper back corners. There was not a single moment in the entire class where he ever looked at one of us students. And I found that, I found that so frustrating that I, I couldn't look at him. Right. I, and, and so I, I wouldn't listen to a single thing he said It's because, you know, he's talking about engineering mechanics and he's looking over here and he's looking over here and then he switch over here. And so I've always remembered that, that, even if you're uncomfortable looking at me while I'm looking at you, you're going to listen to what I have to say because you know that I care about you enough to look at you. And so that's kind of another reminder for me why that's so important. Well, I'm just curious, Jim, from a sales perspective or from a leadership perspective, what might be a couple of suggestions that you could give to our listeners that will make them more effective in either one of those arenas arena (laughs) um i I chuckle because i was told recently that i'm a terrible salesperson um and and the reason i i the reason that 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 as that was qualified as that statement was qualified it it's because i care too much about the person that i'm selling to and um from a sales perspective I don't, I don't care what you're selling. If you, if you, if you just qualify sales, the word sales 
it's kind of like the evangelical church. What's that? Right. It, the, the, the idea of sales is widget, right? Widget volume response. Mm-hmm. And, and I am a, I'm terrible at that. Numbers don't matter to me. Volume doesn't matter. What matters to me is relationship because longevity is what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, so that's going to switch over into kind of drift over into leadership. What I would say is you have to define what your role is and what your goal is. And if your goal is relationship and longevity, then focus on people's emotions, focus on what, on what their history is, what their context is and understand that. And that's what you use. The unfortunate word that I'm going to choose is leverage because you, you do use that as leverage but you do that as leverage, understanding that there's a good, a better place that you're trying to get them to. Mm-hmm. And that could be as simple as you have the best paint in the world. And you know, if you can leverage that relationship, that that will actually solve their problem. But you have to believe that it's going to solve their problem. If I'm just being paid for volume, then I'm not going to care about all this stuff. And I'm looking for I'm looking for making them as uncomfortable as possible so that they make the decision to get rid of me. And I think that's the difference between sales of widgets and sales of relationships, which is really what I'm, uh, what I'm about. Well, I think you just summed up our last 40 episodes, Jim, very Mm -hmm. specifically. Um, So yeah, I, I would obviously gladly be classified a bad salesperson if it meant I did what you do. So, Mm -hmm. um, so I, Flip side of the coin, and I know you've been doing this for a long time. You've been running your your association for a long time. So my hunches are probably aren't too many uh, leadership frustrations, but certainly if you have any that are still challenging, love to hear what they are or what was challenging, you know, in the beginning, or we'll give you one more option. Um, What are the biggest frustrations from a leadership perspective that your members might be um, dealing with? I would say that they're probably similar. Uh, so I thank you for adding that third one, because I think that's relevant, um, it, particularly in the association world, is for me to think about what my frustrations are as their leader and as an, an industry representative that's leading a, a, a potential for uh, companies that aren't members and looking at it from their lens to see what their frustrations are in their world. I think they parallel right now. So what I hear from every contractor uh, and, and actually we hear it from, a, from probably every employer right now is lack of workers, lack of interest in getting involved in working, doing the work, um, going and earning a paycheck. People want to be given money, but not earn the paycheck, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I grew up under a taskmaster father that taught me that value. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, so it's an easy concept for me to understand what's frustrating for me as a leader of this industry. And I think it's the same thing that I hear from, from employers that, that do really know that they have a quality environment to change somebody's lives if they're willing to do the work to get involved in that. And I believe that from a leader of my associations is that I create and manage an environment that really will change their culture. That there are some fantastic things that they're gonna discover here, whether it's simply being networked with colleagues from other parts of the country that can help them see their business in a different way, or it's actually investing in the advocacy and the resources that that we have that are off the shelf solutions. To me, I get, I get so emotional about that. So energized at the potential for someone and frustrated when I can't connect them to that. 
right? Or I get that initial check from them and I don't see them at the next convention or I don't see them in the next regional meeting. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, you know, you're just missing it. Uh, and so I, I think that those are parallel. And, and I, I know some absolute fantastic quality you know, employers out there that are desperate for people that just want to just want to do the work, want to work an eight hour day and go home and leave work behind, but know that they accomplished something that they can be proud of, or they can drive somebody say, and drive, drive by some, uh, drive someone by it and say, I built that. Uh, those are the, those are the companies that I represent. And, and I just, so I'm, I, I think I, that's very beneficial for me to understand that my frustrations parallel their frustrations, because then it also helps me see ways that I can reach out and help them. Yeah. I, I, I hear that. And, you know, one of the things that I counsel um, my clients all the time on is don't look for people who want a job, look for people who want a purpose. Mm. And because if, if you can provide that purpose for them, they're going to show up because it gives, it fulfills their lives and their meanings and the paycheck just comes along with it. If they're looking for a job or a work, you know, that's, we're dealing, and I don't want to get too deep into this, but you know, you're dealing at, at, at you know, a, a much lower level need, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, you know, that's, that's, yep. a, that's, a, that's physiological needs. I need to put food in my belly. I'd rather be working at, at, at um, self-actualization. You know, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up. I, um, I'm privileged to teach a, a business course, a three-day business course uh, with a gentleman named Rocky Jeans. And it's his course, and he's kind of brought me in. Uh, he's one of my mentors that I was talking about earlier. And uh, we, we teach that, that pyramid. We, we teach um, the principles of it. And it's interesting, if you look at the layers, you will quickly identify that there's about halfway up, a little over a third of the way, almost halfway up the pyramid, there's this line and you talk about self-actualization, everything below that line are things that people will fiercely defend mm. that if you rob them of it, or if you create an environment that doesn't allow them to, to protect, deliver and extend those layers, they will fiercely defend it and you won't get their involvement. But if you find, if you find a way as an employer, as an association leader, whatever your goals are, to, to structure yourself, to, to help them grow that, defend that and provide for those lower layers, they are, they are fantastic. They are engaged and they're going to do what you want to, to accomplish with them. Brilliant. Jim, as we start to wind down, are there any last minute thoughts or something that you have that you would like our listeners to, to hear moving forward? Yeah, I, you know, I think the, the one thing that I'm trying to get across as much as possible now, and this is with my colleagues in the association management world, with the companies that I have been privileged to serve in our associations, and even just the passersby that I, that I engage, uh, is, you know, we're, we're, we're so focused on getting back to normal and setting this pandemic behind. And, and I, I want to encourage people to not be quick to dismiss it to not forget what we've learned, what we've employed, the successes hmm. that we've made, that we've crafted, the solutions, the pivoting that we've been about, because it's a part of, I think, our rich learning experience that this generation and, and the last 100 years of generations has not had the opportunity 
to to use then going forward into their future. And it's, it's not dissimilar in any way from the Great Recession and the practices that we learned there, the, um, the surviving, the survival characteristics that we learned from the Great Recession from a business perspective and how we've implemented them. And if you talk to contractors particularly, there's not a single contractor that is active today that doesn't have a part of that left brain, that emotion side of their brain invested in what they learned from the Great Recession. And I think if we learn to um, move forward over the next few years, fully engaging, fully implementing what we learned through pandemic, I think we're all going to be better people. We're going to be better businesses. We're going to be better networks. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice, not just about the pandemic. Obviously, this has been a, a powerful and significant emotional event for the entire world. Um, but as we go through life and these events, big and small, right, we, we can choose to either bury them in which case we fail to learn and gain anything positive out of them, or we could choose to engage them and, and, and learn and grow from them. And I think that's a better choice. So I think those are wise words. Um, Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure, as I knew it would be having you on here. Uh, we could probably go for another, well, couple hours, um, but we do want to allow our listeners to at least go and, and take their bio breaks that they need to. So we're going to, we're going to call this. Um, Thank you so much. Uh, it's been it's been fun. Thank you so much, uh, both you and Darren. Um, I've, I've always appreciated the times that you and I get to talk with each other. I want to thank your listeners for spending spending this last half hour with us. And I'm I'm easy to connect with. You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, any of our association websites. I'm always happy to have conversations uh, spinning out from these. Great. I'm glad I'm glad you uh, plugged that. What is that uh, website? Uh, CFA Walls. W-A-L-L-S dot O-R-G will get to me. Um, that's one of the easiest ways to find me or, or James Beatty, B-A-T-Y on LinkedIn. All right. Well, thanks again, Jim. You did a great Dave, job. Thanks. Well done. Thank you. That concludes another episode of Disarming Persuasion. My name's Dave Rosenberg. And this is Darren Cecil. Visit our websites at LockedOnLeadership.com or DarrenCecil.com Follow us on social media. You can find the links in the show notes. Remember, if they fail to make a decision, you failed to disarm them.